The views and opinions expressed on my story, Living with Lupus Podcast, represents each person's individual experience. By listening to this podcast or reading our blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. As always, consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. My Story Living with Lupus podcast is officially trademarked, all rights reserved. Thank you for joining me for another episode of My Story, Living with Lupus. I'm your host, Susan Hendricks, and I'm so glad that you could join me on this Friday, May 8th, 2020. Today, we'll be discussing chronic pain. You'll hear from a chronic pain sufferer, Edie Fulog. She'll be telling her story about living in chronic pain and breaking down the stigma and discrimination of those who are suffering on a daily basis with chronic pain. Also, you'll hear about my upcoming heart surgery scheduled for May 12th. It's not by choice, but it's a necessity. So you know what I want you to do all the way from the United States to South Africa. Grab your cup of coffee, your cup of tea, and to all those who are listening late at night, Grab your favorite glass of wine and join the conversation right here on my story, Living with Lupus.
For those who don't live in chronic pain on a daily basis, what do you really know about chronic pain? What is it that you understand about chronic pain? Here are some facts for you on chronic pain. American Chronic Pain Association asserts chronic pain is the number one cause of adult disability in the United States. The Joint Commission on the Accreditation of Healthcare Organization states nearly a third of Americans will experience chronic pain at some point in their lives. The ALPS asserts people are experiencing pain at a younger age than what may be commonly perceived or assumed proportionately, just as many younger people experience back pain as do middle-aged and older adults. Two out of three people living with chronic pain say that it leads to stress and irritable behavior. The National Pain Survey conducted for Ortho McNeil Pharmaceutical asserts the most common types of pain includes arthritis, lower back pain, bone, joint pain, muscle pain, and fibromyalgia. New York Presbyterian Hospital states that 70 to 85% of adults in the United States have back pain at some point in their lives. Arthritis pain affects 40 million Americans. As many as 45 million Americans suffer from chronic recurrent headaches. Now, how big of a problem is chronic pain in America? Well, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 20.4% of the U.S. adult population suffers from chronic pain and 8.0% experience high-impact chronic pain that interferes with daily life. Of these, almost 50 million Americans, pain conditions are more likely to appear with advancing age among women and among the impoverished. The report goes on to state that chronic pain costs the nation almost $560 
billion every year in lost work productivity, medical expenses, and disability programs. It appears that chronic pain cases are on the rise, but there may be some contributing factors. First of all, the U.S. population is getting older, and that raises the likelihood of pain conditions. Secondly, this generation of Americans is more likely to seek out medical assistance for their pain than previous generations. Finally, many pain conditions may be a result of a more active lifestyle. More baby boomers have adopted a physical fitness routine that can lead to slips, falls, and fractures. What causes chronic pain stigma? Well, for the 50 million Americans who struggle with chronic pain, one of the first challenges is convincing a physician that the pain condition is real and not an attempt to obtain pain medications. For many pain patients, this is one of the first instances of social isolation and probably one of the most painful. Healthcare professionals are supposed to treat pain, but the ongoing opioid epidemic has made almost every physician into a criminal investigator that must first be convinced that the pain is genuine. Unfortunately, some people may have to go on for some time before a physician believes their pain is real. It may be even more difficult to convince a doctor of ongoing pain if you are a minority, a substance abuser, impoverished, homeless, very young, or HIV positive. Now, if you are able to find a physician who believes you are in pain, they may not be able to help you as much as you would hope. Many doctors are cutting back on prescribing power pain killers due to changing guidelines. However, most doctors have minimal training in pain treatment, so they may not be able to offer any reliable alternatives. When we return, you'll hear from a chronic pain sufferer, Edie Fuhog. She'll tell her story 
right here on my story, Living with Lupus. So stay with us. All right, now it's time for me to inform you regarding um, why I am going into the hospital to have a heart procedure performed. Now, if you've listened to my podcast, you'll know through many episodes that I've talked about how lupus has attacked my internal organs and yes, my heart. Well, last year, uh, my cardiologist and I decided to put off having a procedure then. We said that we will wait And so a couple of weeks ago, I started to experience chest pains. Now, these were not the normal chest pains. Um, And I had a telemedicine visit with my cardiologist and I explained to him the symptoms and the signs that I was experiencing. And he said, Susan, I'm going to schedule you an appointment to have some testing done. I need to check your carotid artery and um, your heart. We need to do some tests. I said, okay. So I went into the hospital, had the test performed while laying on the table. Um... The tech had the monitor where I could see it. And we were talking back and forth, and I was steady looking at the monitor. And and I said to myself, girl, you in trouble. This is going to be a hospital visit. And so as um, I proceeded to um, check out, the young lady said, Miss Hendricks. I said, yeah. She said, your doctor be calling you on Monday. I said, okay. And in my head, I says, confirmation right there. And so I said, okay, now I have to go and inform my oldest sister. Now, let me explain this first, just in case they are listening, which I know they will be listening along with my daughter. I know um, how much to tell each and every last one of my siblings along with my daughter. So, while driving back home, I was devising a plan on how I would tell my oldest sister. 
My oldest sister, you have to understand, it can get a little frantic along with, well, she know, I call her ditzy. And so I waited and we were doing something. And I said, what if I get a call from the doctor stating that I have to go to the hospital? And she said, oh, you're not going anywhere. I said, but just think about it. Just wonder if I get a call from the doctor and they said that I have to go to the hospital to have a procedure done. She said, oh, nothing's wrong with you. You're going to be fine. I said, okay, just wondering, just in case, just wondering. So we went on and finally the call came on Monday. I think it was May the 7th, May the 6th, whatever Monday was. Telemedicine call. My sister was on the third level doing her hair, and I was on the main level speaking with the doctor, and the doctor said, Susan. I said, mm-hmm. He said, you know, it came out positive. And he said, didn't you? I said, yeah. He said, okay, here are the options. We can no longer wait. If it was a situation like it was before, I would tell you, we can wait. But at this point in time, we can no longer wait. I said, okay, and we went on to discuss. He said, I'm going to have you to come in for some pre-op testing, which I did on Wednesday. And then um, I got a call Wednesday after I got back. Uh, where the pulmonologist, my lung specialist, wanted me to have testing done. And I said, okay. I said, they hit me left and right. I said, okay. So I went on in Wednesday and Thursday is when I went for pre-op testing. So after that call with my cardiologist had hung up, And so I went up on the third level. My sister was doing her hair. And the first words come out of her mouth. I wasn't trying to listen. I was trying to finish my hair. I said, yeah. She said, what did he say? I said, I have to go to the hospital. And she said, oh, shoot. She was cutting her hair. She said, oh, shoot. I plugged my hair. That let me know then that she got nervous and frantic. So, to make a long story short, I went back down on the main level and my sister speaks, her projection is loud. Even though she was trying to whisper, she called my sister Wanda and they called me Tiny. She said, Tiny gotta go in the hospital, it's her heart again. Um, They're going to call her May 12th with the time. And see, that was not what I told her. And so 
then after my sister Wanda, she called my elder brother Charles and told him story was all mixed up. That's because she was nervous. So I received a call from my sister Wanda. And Wanda said, what are they going to do to you now? I'm confused. So I said, okay, I have to explain it to her this way, but not let her know so much information to make her nervous. And then my brother Charles called and he was asking me some questions. It wasn't about um, everything that had transpired. He was trying to get a feel on how I sounded and if I was worried. And I said, okay, he's picking for answers in his own way. And so I let him go on and he stayed on the phone till he got reassurance from my tone that I was all right. And so I sat in the dining room and I said, let me call my brother and just spill it out to him to stop all the confusion. My other two sisters, they get frantic. And so I explained to him, I said, look, this is what it is. Um, this is what's going to be. It's not by choice. It is a necessity. And then he said, okay. All right. Uh-huh. But yes, I am going in to have a procedure done on my heart. My sister said that she was not going to allow them to keep me in the hospital. And I told her the choice was not hers. If it is necessary for me to stay in the hospital after, after the procedure... And I have a feeling that I will be in there maybe for about three or four days um, because I have other conditions that they have to be concerned about. I have a blood issue, blood clotting issue that um, they would be concerned about now. But I want all of you to know, especially my family, that, well, this is to my family. I understand where you come, you guys are coming from. I know that you care about me, okay? Even down to my daughter, I know that you care about me in your own separate ways, but this is what I want you guys, everyone, to understand. I face everything that is placed before me. I know no weapon formed against me shall prosper. Everything regarding my health that tried to conquer me, I conquered. You see, I didn't get better. 
because I was dealt these cards in life, I just got better. This mountain that is be placed before me, I won't go around it. I just will simply speak to it. Just know that I know that I am fearfully and wonderfully created. And the last time I checked, I am oh so blessed from the crown of my head to the soles of my feet. I know that God is a keeper and I'm also thankful for God keeping me. I know that God's grace and mercy is all over my life. So what I'm asking you not to do is please don't worry. And rest assured and know that God has my back. As promised, I have a chronic pain sufferer who is willing to share her story to break the stigma and discrimination of those living in chronic pain. Our guest, Edith Fugue, is here to tell you her story. Thank you so much for joining us, Edith. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Could you please tell our listeners a little bit about you? Sure. Um, I am in, I'm 48 and I live in Florida and I was pretty much very healthy up until um, my late 30s. I was diagnosed with breast cancer and um, I had a mastectomy and had some issues that, from that. I got a really bad bacteria infection, but for a couple of years after that, I was pretty healthy. And then um, I developed Guillain-Barre syndrome and Parsonage-Turner syndrome, which is also known as brachial neuritis. It's when your immune system attacks your nervous system. Mm-hmm. So it basically paralyzes those parts of your body. So it, since it affected my brachial and then my lower spine, the nerves around my uh, lower spine, I was unable to walk. I was unable to use my left side of my body. Um, and I spent a few months hospitalized and in rehab so I could rebuild my muscles and things like that. But the, that's when I learned of pain, like real intense pain. And it became part of my life, and it now has completely taken over my life because since then I've also been diagnosed with lupus, and some I have like not many other chronic illnesses to go with it, which is usually what happens with people with autoimmune disease. You usually get more than one, unfortunately. Um, and so chronic pain became part of my life, and 
I started needing to take um, opioids. Um, I tried everything. I tried therapy. I tried yoga. I tried hip, you know, um, meditating. I tried nerve stimulation. I tried tens units. Anything and everything you can imagine. I changed my diet um, for six, seven months at a time to see if that would help. And nothing was helping. I mean, I I tried just using like lidocaine and and things that were not um, opioids. I tried CBD oils and CBD creams, and and unfortunately, nothing worked for me except the opioids. And I found a doctor who got it, and we got a, a good thing going, and we had a perfect amount that worked very well for me, and. I was stable and I was able to, um, get up and, you know, do normal things, do the laundry, do go for a walk down the street with my, my child, um, just everyday normal things, cook a meal from scratch, you know, because sometimes being on my feet, I, after 10 minutes, I can't do it any longer from the pain. Um, Nerve pain is just something I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. And having it throughout my body the way I do is just extremely, extremely difficult for me to function without these medications. And unfortunately came the opioid crisis, which now in a way has turned into opioid hysteria, we like to call it, because people such as myself that suffer from chronic pain that have never abused their medications, have never lost their meds, or had early refills, or done anything to raise a red flag. We now can't get our medications. Um, doctors aren't taking new patients if you move. If they close their practice, no, you can't transfer to another practice. And then on top of it, the pharmacies are just flat out refusing to fill opioids. I was going to the same um, pharmacy for five years and in 2017 CVS manager said starting in two months you can no longer come here for your opioids you have to find a new pharmacy and I said why and they said because it's opioids we'll fill everything up but we will no longer fill your opioids and I was just like well if I needed insulin if you if you said no to my insulin that would be discrimination and they said, no, 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 it's not because it, opioids are different. It's not a necessity. And I said, I beg to differ. It is a necessity for a lot of people. And um, that started now this whole process where now we're in the process of a class action lawsuit against um, a lot of these pharmacies because millions of us are being discriminated against or being refused services. And we're just being, um, based off of our medical condition, we're being told no. And based off of our health. And, I mean, imagine somebody that walks in and let's say they have a heart condition or HIV or diabetes and they're refused services or medication. That would be all over the news. Yes, it would. Right? You're right. And partly... In my opinion, it's a lot of physicians out here that do not understand um, chronic pain sufferers. They really don't know what to do. 
And also, um, I had this discussion with a young lady sometime back, and I told her, you have a lot of doctors. I'm not saying this about all doctors, but it's a lot of doctors who has made it bad for patients to get the medication they need to control the chronic pain. Yes. And, like, for my situation, I had a wonderful pain management doctor be- long ago. I started going to him eight years ago. When- and he's been wonderful. problem with that is I had to move um, four hours away. And when I tried getting new pain management doctors, and this was 2014 and 15 before it really got bad, I was refused services by these practices of pain management. They would tell me, too complicated or we will see you but we will not give you the medications you've been taking for four years and so I have to drive every month four hours one way to go see my doctor in Miami and then I was able to get them filled over here for the longest time but then like I said CVS said we'll no longer fill it so I found a Walgreens 30 minutes from my home that was willing to fill it, and I had to fill all my medications with them for them to fill the, the two opioids that I was taking. And that worked for a while, and now uh, about six months ago is when they came out now and said, well, we won't fill it because your doctor's not in the same county as our pharmacy. Wow. But the ones in Miami, when I'm in Miami, they won't fill it because the address of my driver's license is in a completely other part of the state. So I'm like stuck in this. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what to call it. It's just been uh, the fact that we have anyone, especially disabled people, have to go through what chronic pain patients have to go through and I mean I if my nail polish is chipped I will fix it before I go into the pharmacy because I'm afraid that they'll look at me because my nail polish is chipped that oh she's not taking care of herself because she must be a junkie I mean not where the stigma that's come with it they look at you they I mean pharmacists have come out and said, well, I didn't feel it because she just didn't look right. Her makeup, well, she didn't have a lot of makeup on or her hair was a mess or she didn't have nice clothes or so now they're judging us based off of what we look like. You know what? When you said that, that is so true. I can go to the emergency room if I'm in a a lupus flare and the flare is really so bad that I cannot handle it. And it will take them forever to give me anything for the pain because they look at me, I'm African-American, and automatically in their mind, oh, she can deal with the pain or she's either an addict Uh or if we write her a script, she's going to sell it out on the street. Uh And To be honest with you, no, every day I don't feel like putting on any makeup. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like doing anything to my hair. Even I, if you didn't have an illness, you wouldn't, yeah. you're not going to want to do that every day. That's just us. We're women. We're human. Yeah. And um, 
to to discriminate against me for the color of my skin or how I you perceive me to look because I'm in pain to say, oh, you a junkie or you can handle Uh it. It's totally wrong. No, it is. I was in the hospital for because of my condition, the Guillain-Barre syndrome. I have a chronic form of it. And the treatment is IVIG infusion, which I'm sure you know, yeah. you know, with lupus and stuff. Well, I was in the hospital receiving my IVIG for five days straight, and I developed one of the rare symptoms or rare side effects. I got meningitis. I got aseptic meningitis. Well, the the headaches, the pain I was in for the meningitis was unbearable, and they would not give me pain medication whatsoever. They would only give me my oral um, medication, which has been the same quantity and same dose since two, first, at that point, it had been seven years, I've been taking the same amount of medication. Nothing had increased, not the quantity, not the, the strength, nothing. And I said to him, what happens if I have a bone sticking out of my leg one day? Are you guys going to say, oh, well, she takes this every day, so she's good. She doesn't need anything else. Mm-hmm. I said, because it, it frightens me. So then, again, I went in. I have um, the facial nerve. I don't know if you know what that is. I, I can never say it correctly. It's transgenial gem, facial nerve. Yeah. Where... They say it's one of the top five worst painful conditions anyone can have. It just started out of nowhere for me a year ago. And I went to an emergency room and they said, sorry, we're not going to give you anything, not even what you normally take. And they refused to give me anything. They said, we'll give you Benadryl. I was like, I'm not having an allergy. Like, (laughs) So my daughter rushed me to another hospital and I ended up being admitted for 18 days. And I, it was just unbelievable to me that they refused and they even acknowledged to me, yes, this condition's horrific. And, you know, it's called a suicide disease because a lot of people with it end up committing suicide because the pain is so bad, which I think is, you know, right. horrible to do permanent you know, something permanent for something that's temporary. Right. um, I was just astounded that they wouldn't, I mean, I was, my blood pressure was extremely high. I wasn't breathing well. I was uh, very sick um, from the pain. It was making me very nauseous and, and they wouldn't give me anything. And I was just like, you know, this is just crazy to me that this is where we're at. Like, and I told my children, it scares me. If I'm in a horrible car wreck or something, they're not going to give me pain medication because of what I take. Yeah. And it's like if you take Tylenol every day, it's not going to work any for something new. Right. So if you get something new that happens that's painful, what you take every day to maintain your pain at a, a relatively functional level, it's not going to work for the new pain that has now entered your body right. and you're experiencing, right. you know, and I, I tell that to people, I don't expect to be pain free with what I take. I don't, I know that's impossible. My, my pain management doctor was fabulous. And when he said to me one day, you're, you're coming to me and you're telling me you're in pain. And he's like, I have to, I hate to tell you this, 
but you're always going to be in pain. Mm -hmm. What we give you isn't going to take it away. We're just trying to get it to a point where you can walk or you can cook or you can shower, you can go to work sometimes or whatever, you know, get it to a manageable level. And that changed my, my life, honestly, when I looked at it that way and thought, okay, so if I can get to a four or five everyday pain level, then I'm good. And I was there for a long time. And then, unfortunately, my doctor, to show the DEA that he's complying with these changes, had to take the medication I had been taking for, you know, five, six years, eight years, had to now reduce it by 60 pills a month. Right. So I was taking 120 a month, and now I was down to 60. And eventually I was able to get back up because I have all the, you know, scans and blood work and everything that proves that I have all these conditions. But, um, you know, that's another thing. Pain isn't a one-size-fits-all, you know. What I take for my pain might not work for you. You might need something stronger or something less. Right. And... For them to say, okay, everybody's under this umbrella now where you can't have more than a 90 milligram equivalent of morphine a day. And it's like, well, you're going to tell somebody that weighs maybe 400 pounds or 350 pounds that you need to take what somebody that weighs 110 pounds works for them. Or, you know, it just doesn't make sense. And it's like you wouldn't do that with an antidepressant. You wouldn't give it a one-size-fits-all. Insulin isn't one size fits all. Um, either it's cardiac medication or high blood pressure medication. So what makes them think that opioids is going to be a one size fits all? I mean, my health insurance doesn't even cover it anymore. I have to pay cash. Wow. They won't pay for it. Wow. Imagine if they stop paying for insulin. Right. That would not, there'd be politicians all over it going, no, this is wrong. And journalists, but because it, you know, opioids, and when you say opioids, people think it's heroin, mm-hmm. and illicit, illegal fentanyl that comes in a powder or a vial. Fentanyl that you get from a doctor every month is a patch. Mm-hmm. It's not a pill you're taking. So, unfortunately, the way, and then when the media starts talking about it, they show pictures of pill bottles. And what they should be showing are needles and, and black tar heroin, not what um, people take every day in a healthy way. Right. And, you know, I've been taking it for all these years and I'm not, uh, I'm not addicted. I've never abused it. I shouldn't say I'm not addicted. Obviously your body becomes addicted to something you take every day. Right. Um, and if you stop taking any kind of medication an antidepressant, even they can go through certain withdrawals, whether it's nausea or whatever. Right. But, I've never abused it. And the people, the majority of us that have chronic pain do not abuse it because if you abuse it, then you suffer eventually within a week. And the way the the system is now, you can't abuse it because if you go into your doctors and you don't pass your urine test because it's not in your, in your urine, the medication or you come in and your pill count, because you have to bring your bottle with you and they count your pills mm-hmm. to make sure you have exactly what you're supposed to. Mm-hmm. So all these, you can get away with it for one month and that's it. And after that one month, 
you'll lose your your doctor and you'll never get another one because if you're discharged by a doctor in pain management, you're blacklisted from that point forward. Right. Now- and you can't get in anywhere else. So, and then all these other changes, what's happening and see they're causing um, chronic pain patients that have lost access to pain medication are committing suicide. A lot of them are veterans or they're turning to heroin and street drugs. They're, it's so the what they're trying to prevent is what they're causing to happen, an increase in usage of illegal drugs. Right, right. How has your family and friends dealt with your chronic illness? Um, it's really affected everybody a little bit differently. I was married for 25 years when this happened. When I got Guillain-Barre, my husband ended up leaving me because he couldn't handle it. He was like, I can't deal with the paralysis and everything else. And he met another woman when I was sick and that was it. Um, which I'm okay. We're good. I forgave him. We're on great terms. You know, that in the past, it actually was a good thing, I think. Mm-hmm. But my oldest daughter moved away right when I was getting sick for college. Mm-hmm. So she's kind of been hands off. She's very involved when I'm in the hospital because I do about nine hospitalizations a year. Um, she'll come down or she's constantly calling the nurse's station. And she's very involved. But my youngest, who now is 19, almost 20, has been the one taking care of me since she was 12 because that's when her dad left. And she was putting together my wheelchair and she was the one helping me walk and fed up and down stairs or curves or all those things I still need help with. And she does all that. And it breaks my heart as a mother. You know, you don't want your child to have to do all those things. But I mean, she's even, you know, washed my hair for me where I go outside and you, I'm like, let's just use a hose because I can't raise my arm to wash my hair. So I've been very blessed with her in that sense. And she's now in school to become a, um, a nurse. She's getting her BSN right now. So it actually made her want to go into medicine, which I thought she would go far from it. And it, it, instead she's like, I've seen the way you've been handled and treated. And I just, I feel like I can be such an asset and make sure a patients aren't treated the way you've been treated in the healthcare industry. So, and um, you know, there's another blessing that's come from what's happened to me, you know? Yeah. Uh, my mom was very, you know, worried all the time. So I would minimize it always with her. My sister gets it, but my sister doesn't believe in pain medication. Mm-hmm. So she thinks that I, I'm being irresponsible by taking it. But she just doesn't understand. She's not, she doesn't have any, she's completely healthy. You know, she doesn't have any of those things, thank God. And so she doesn't get it. You know, Um, that is one of the stigmas that if you have never walked in an individual's shoes who suffers with a chronic illness, chronic pain, mm -hmm. you can't relate but you to relate to that person they need to become educated absolutely it's the stigmas out here that 
the majority of the people think that we're pretending to be mm-hmm. in pain. You, oh, yeah. you don't look like you're in pain or no, uh, yep. or something else. And the majority of us who have chronic illness covers up all the time just not to hear yes. those words. Oh, yeah. there's nothing wrong with you. So we minimize a lot of I... things that is wrong with us. So we just don't hear Absolutely. That's I tell people all the time, yeah, I'm great. And I'm dying inside, but I tell them I'm doing great. And I put a smile on my face because I don't want, you know, you have those people that will, well, she's just lazy or she's this or she doesn't want to make changes or it's not that bad or, you know, nobody can be in that much pain or, and it's like, when I tell you it hurts to take a shower, it hurts to take a shower. You know, I'm not, I don't want this. Or when I do talk about it, and well, you want attention, I've heard that. Mm-hmm. No, I want to raise awareness because there's people out there that are alone. Yeah. And there's people that they don't know what's wrong with them. And if they read my story, someone else's story, they won't, they'll go, okay, now I have a starting point. Right. You know? Right. Um, on one of my podcasts, I had mentioned about um, if you're newly diagnosed with a chronic illness and you can go on social media especially Facebook now I'm not bashing let me put this disclaimer out there I'm not bashing anybody who puts their pain on social media but I know dealing with lupus I sit back and I watch people especially on Facebook say oh I'm in so much pain and um, should I go to the doctor or should I go to the emergency room? And they get graphic with it. But if you're newly diagnosed with something and you have a person that all of a sudden goes on to Facebook and sees this and they have the same illness as the other person, especially with lupus, I'm just going to put it out there, especially with lupus, you will have that person to freak totally out. Instead of putting information on your page stating, well, this is what I go through, but this is... Doesn't mean everybody else is going to go through but this is my, my story with it. And... One reason why I started this podcast was to bring awareness with factual information from people who go through different situations with their chronic illness. So those people who have been newly diagnosed can learn and can reflect back. Well, I heard this in this podcast this episode of the podcast, let me go back and check and let me pick up some questions where I can ask my doctor, what about this? That is my main focus in doing this. It's wonderful what you're doing. It's, you know, we need, we need podcasts like yours. You know, it's so important. What would you, Edith, tell someone who is, Diagnosed with the same 
exact illness as you. How would you um, get them to be informed? Um, I would point them to different um, websites that have helped me, the organizations that have helped me. Um, and then I would say find a good health team. If you don't like them or they're not listening to you, keep going until you find them because they're out there. And then just take it day by day, one day at a time. And every day I wake up when I, and I make a, a promise that either I'm going to watch the sunrise one day, the next day or the sunset. And during those five, ten minutes that I'm sitting watching still, I remember how grateful um, I should be and how blessed I truly am. I live in a country that medicine, we have access to the best medical care. Um, I have a great health team. I have great family. I have social media where I've met all these people that have helped me along the way. Um, you know, there's all these opportunities to do research or to be part of a study. There's just so many positives that can come from such a negative if you choose to look at those positives right. and it's got to be a choice that you make and you have to, because if not, it's not only is the illness going to take you down, your mental state going to take you out of the game way faster. And having, having a being depressed all the time or questioning why me all the time is just, you're going to push everybody away and you're going to seclude yourself and it's not going to end up being a good situation and you're going to feel worse. You're going to feel more pain. You're going to feel everything a hundred times more because you're, you're so sad. And yes, depression isn't something that you can choose or, or make a choice all the time. I have it. I have battled depression, but I also make sure I, if I find that I'm stuck in that little hole of going, why me? I take out a piece of paper and I start writing, why not me? Thank God it's me. It's not my nieces and nephews. It's not my children. It's not my mother. It's not all these people I love. And on top of it, I have great health insurance and I have great doctors. And so I make a choice in that moment to start refocusing my energy. And if there's times that I just need to sleep and feel better and get through that depression or that bad state, I'll, I'll do it. I'll tell myself, okay, I'm going to give yourself 48 hours. And I, I have to say I have a wonderful group of people that pull me out of it. They, they know the signs. They'll see I'm not returning a phone call or I'm not answering my texts. Or, and they won't let up. They'll just be like, hey, you know, I'm here when you're ready. You know, they keep on. And my daughter, who lives with me, is really good about saying, okay, no, we're going to get up and we're going to make a meal and we're going to go to the store, you know. So I do have a great support system, which I know not everybody has. But if you don't have, like, your family near you, you can find that support on social media. You really can. Yeah. Um, and it's something that I would recommend to – to do to look for if you don't have your family nearby and I also believe you need to be honest with your family some people don't want to tell them or they're afraid they're going to be judged or and they need to flat out say whether if they can't physically say it write it in a letter and say I need you to understand these things that come along with me being sick and having a chronic illness 
and this is what I need from you when I'm down or when I'm not down, this is still what I need from you. What? And Go ahead. I was going to say the number one thing as a chronic with chronic illness is we just don't want to be judged and looked down upon and felt sorry for and, and, you know, we don't want to be told, well, if you lose 10 pounds or mm-hmm. if you exercise more, if you don't eat that or don't drink that, then you'll be fine. Or if you take this vitamin or if you take this CBD or no, it's like, don't you think we've tried everything? Right. It's not a, people. I get frustrated when people think this is a choice. This is not a choice. And we fight every day to get better. And we're not going to get better sometimes. We're going to always have these illnesses as part of our life. Right. But so don't tell us what we're doing wrong or what we're doing to not make ourselves better because every day we're trying to make ourselves better. What would you say to the general public who really don't understand and who sometimes wants to place a label on those with chronic illness and those who suffer from chronic pain? What would you like to say to them? I would like them to stop think and be grateful that it's not touch you or your family because when it does you're going to understand and you're not you're going to be shocked with what happens to you when you have a chronic illness or chronic pain in fact I tell everybody you're only one car accident you're one illness you're one surgery you're one vaccine or flu shot because that's how I got sick from having a chronic illness and chronic pain and so if you realize that it's that quickly can happen to you one diagnosis away maybe you'll stop and go okay I shouldn't judge this person or I should treat this person with a little bit more kindness and show them more understanding and you know not if you see somebody parked in a handicap that can walk and doesn't need a wheelchair, don't yell at them and say, oh, you're not handicapped or you're not disabled. You don't know what somebody, the battle someone else is going through. And a simple hello or a simple kindness or patience can make a world of a difference in our lives, in everybody's life, but especially those with chronic illness. Now, and, go ahead. You know, we need, we need kindness and you need to, because in life, if you're not kind and you're not doing the best you can do for others out there, karma exists and it will come back. Yes, it will. What comes around goes around and you don't want it to come back around to you or somebody you love. You are so, you are so correct. You mentioned the flu shot and the vaccine how did those two play a role in your chronic illness well i got a um vaccine flu shot and within a few weeks i ended up sick i was also taking black noel which is um hydroxychloroquine also known as that which is kind of famous right now mm-hmm. <laughs> But which also kind of shuts down your immune system. So I was taking that, and then I take these, this, you know, medication or vaccine, flu shot, 
And so now my immune system, instead of, you know, responding properly, it caused, it triggered my immune system to attack my nervous system. And so that's how it all began for me. And how they found that out was when I was in the hospital, they did a spinal tap and they found that it was this Guillain-Barre. They they can tell from the scans and the MRI of your spot, the, the nerve roots in my spine. And then to confirm it, you have to have high levels of protein in your spinal fluid, which I did. Um, and then from that process, they start trying to rule things out. They looked into different viruses that it could have caused it. They looked at West Nile virus, Epstein, virus. Um, they looked at all these bacteria to see if that could have done it. Then they went through all my medications to see if that could have been a trigger. And when they were all said and done, they even looked into um, malignancy to see if there was a nerve cancer I had. Or when they did all that, that's when they were able to say, okay, no, the only thing still left on the table is this. And that's what caused it. Wow. And so, unfortunately, it caused my immune system to just go haywire, and it's never recuperated. So, wow, wow. I was perfectly healthy, and then literally overnight, I woke up. I went to bed healthy, and I woke up that next morning, and my it usually starts in your feet, mm-hmm. and for me, it started in my face. So it took them a while to figure out what was going on because it was backwards. And it started out, we went to breakfast, we were on vacation, and I took a bite of food, and I was like, oh my gosh, my tongue is numb. I literally was like touching my tongue, and then the tip of my nose was numb, and you don't think uh, you could ever feel numbness there or pins and needles there, but when you do, it's the craziest feeling. And then it was my jaw, and then it started going to my feet, my toes, my pinky finger on my hand, it started... And it slowly started working its way up. And then I was once I was in the hospital for Guillain-Barre syndrome, about 10 days later is when I was diagnosed with the other condition, Parsonage-Turner syndrome, also known as brachial neuritis, where in our shoulder, we have these two balls called our brachial plexus. It's where all the nerves from our head and our neck um, are balled up in each shoulder. And the, my immune system attacked the left brachial plexus and I'm left-handed so Mm -hmm. um and the pain with that is I've given birth with no medication to my child um I've had many surgeries I've had a double mastectomy I've had um reconstruction surgeries I've had you name it and nothing has been pain I've never experienced pain like that and they were giving me, I had never been on pain meds, and they were now giving me, like, IV pain meds, the max dose, and they had me on a fentanyl patch, and they were giving me oral pain meds, and it still wasn't touching my pain. Wow. It was so bad. Wow. And um, they, the, all the neurologists, they just kept sending doctors in going, we just want to meet you. And I'm like, why? And they said, because we've never heard of a case of someone that has both of these. And they've done research, and they've to this day, my doctor said there's only one other case that has happened since mine that somebody has had both of those at the same time. He submitted my case to the journal, New England Journal of Medicine, because 
it's such a it was such a rare thing to happen. Wow. And then since then, you know, I was diagnosed with lupus and mixed connective tissue, tissue. disease, Hashimoto's, mm. you name it, intracranial hypertension, and I've had to have nerve optic nerve surgeries for that. Um, I've you name it, I've had it. <laughs> wow. Or I have it. Wow. Well, but like I said, I considered myself. I still think I'm blessed. I live in America. I have health insurance. I have great family, and it's not happening to my children. It's happening to me. Right. So to me, that's a blessing. Yes. Yes, that's understandable. I tell God every day, give it, give me all you got. As long as you keep my children and my nieces and my nephews healthy, I'm good. Yes, I understand that. Before we go, is it anything else you would like the listeners to know? Just to hang on to hope every day. When you're feeling down, just remember, as long as you have hope, you're good. You're winning. If we have, you know, we all have problems. We all have stresses, money, um, jobs, especially right now. But remember, if you have your health, Everything else is fixable. Everything else is a problem. It's not uh, It's not altering your life. Like I say, there are moments in life where you're, you have a before and an after moment. And it's not because I can't pay my bill that I remember this day. or It's because that's the day I got sick. It's because I have a before Guillain-Barre and an after Guillain-Barre. I don't have a before I could pay my electric bill and an after I could pay, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and I get it. Those are, that's no joke. Like, you know, people that struggle and financially or are worried and that can affect your health, but you can, that's, we can fix those, those issues. Eventually it might take a little bit, but it is fixable. When you lose your health, you can't fix that. That's right. It's, it's with you. And that's when you know how blessed you are because you'll look at your life and go, okay, well, I made it through all these dark times and I still have my health. And you're like, okay, I'm good. Where I now look at my life and go, hey, I've made it through financial troubles in my life. Thank goodness. And my kids are healthy. I can't be feel blessed because I'm not healthy, but I feel I choose to look at the blessing and the, that it's me that's sick and not my my kids or my family members so if you just find hope and you hang on to that hope then then you're winning you know yeah I, I would like to thank you so much Edith for telling your story well thank and- you for having me and allowing me to, to share it you know I'm no expert I don't have all the right answers and I may see things that aren't right, but I've been through it and I truly, and I'm going through it like you. And I truly believe if you hang on a, if I have on my foot a tattoo that says there's always hope. There is, there is. I just hang on to my hope and my faith that it's going to be okay. Well, once again, Thank you for joining us and telling your story on my story, Living with Lupus. You hang on, okay, Edith? Okay.
Before I go, I would like to thank the following individuals who have not received the recognition they deserve during this pandemic. The cashiers, along with stock personnel from the grocery stores all the way to the dollar stores. The sanitation employees, housekeepers, janitors, receptionists, to the registration staff and security guards at the hospitals. Police officers, firefighters, I would like to thank you and if no one else told you today you are appreciated for placing your lives in jeopardy to serve the communities of which we live in also thank you to my guest today Edith Fugue for sharing your story with us. And lastly, I want to leave you all with something. Hope is the bread of the poor. Hope is being able to see that there is light despite all of the darkness. Life isn't just about darkness or light. Rather, it's about finding light within the darkness. No matter the situation, your blessing will always outweigh the disappointments. I'm Susan Hendricks, your host for My Story Living with Lupus. And believe me when I tell you this, I'll see you next week for another episode, whether it's in a hospital bed, recovering, or In my bed here at home, I will continue bringing you information, shedding awareness, breaking down stigma, and discrimination when it comes to living with chronic illness. Knowledge is power. And as long as I have a voice, I will be continuing to bring you information that will assist you along in your journey. So I will see you next week. Have an oh so peaceful, joyful, and oh so blessed weekend. See you next week.
and opinions expressed on my story, Living with Lupus Podcast, represents each person's individual experience. By listening to this podcast or reading our blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. As always, consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. My Story Living with Lucas podcast is officially trademarked, all rights reserved. Thank you.